возлюбленной Богом Церковь, начиная наше богослужение пред Господом, встанем, пожалуйста, и утвердим обетование, относящееся к преддверию нашей надежды, да воцарится воскресение Христова в наших телах. Склоним наши головы в молитве. Дорогой Небесный Отец, во имя Иисуса Христа, мы благодарны имени Твоему Святому за вновь представленную привилегию быть на месте всем, которое очертила десница Твоя для поклонения Святому имени Твоему. И ныне позволь наследию Твоему во имя крови завета подняться на вершины для нас недосягаемые и сокрушить всякое бремя и запинающий нас грех. Да будут прокляты в этом служении, как и прежде, все дела дьявола, болезни, нищета, преждевременная смерть, демоническая зависимость, всевозможные страхи, депрессии, разрушение, косность, невежество – все это да отступит от шатров святого народа Твоего. И ныне встань, Господи, на место покоя Твоего Ты и ковчег могущества Твоего, и да облекутся святые Твои спасением Твоим, и да возрадуются пред лицом Твоим. Дай нам больше от Духа Твоего. Пропитай нас Духом Твоим святым. Позволь нам найти светлое лицо Твое. Я представляю это служение в Твои божественные руки, виде Его, рукою превознесенную, великий Бог, Отец и Дух Святой. Аминь. Да благословит вас Господь, можете садиться. Yeah. 
Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 6 through 9. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. And so, in this place of scripture, prosperity and the work of our hands is made, abundance of the work of our hands is made directly related to the circumcision of our heart. To receive abundance in the work of our hands, we are made dependent on our descendants. We're talking about our roots. Descendants are our roots, where we came from. Descendants is a fruit of our room that testifies of our ability to be fertilized by the seed of the word of truth. Under the descendants and the subject of the fruit of our room, we are referring to the harvest of that seed that we have sown on our field. The essence of the circumcision of our heart is comprised of this, so that we can die to the world, to the house of our Father, and, our, and the corrupt desires of our soul. God cannot rejoice over us when we are bound by the curse of poverty, but he also is not going to favor us while our heart, until our heart is circumcised as at one point the hearts of our descendants or our fathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The circumcision of our heart is a process that occurs when we begin to serve the one God or to trust in the one Lord, as it is written in Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon in Greek means riches. This is also the name of one of the demonic princes who entices the hearts of people with riches, with material goods, money. You can't serve God and mammon. Some people don't even realize that they are serving a different God. If a person is not able to honor God with tithes and offerings, he doesn't serve God. Whatever justifications he might find in order to not honor God, basing this on his own interpretation that this is a part of the Old Testament and we don't need this today, God has a law, and if we don't honor this law, we fall away from God. You serve mammon, therefore you are trying to find a way out. 
On one hand, the circumcision of a heart and the subject of our fruit occurs when our first fruit is dedicated to God. This is talking about businessmen. A working person should say that his first um, income should be given to the Lord. This is for those businessmen. When you're opening up your business, it's necessary for this business to have some kind of all that comes for the month to give to God. And then you will give a tenth part from everything. On the other hand, when from every income you separate tithes unto God, Leviticus 23, 10-11, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. Oftentimes, that is violation of this principle that deprives God of the opportunity to cooperate with us in the work of our hands. When we separate our tithes after after paying taxes, it stops becoming a first fruit. And therefore, it ceases to be a tithe. It's necessary to separate first to God and then to the government. The next moment that we should pay attention to is the land in which we are called to sow so that the first harvest we can offer God. God didn't establish that Israelites offer tithes from those harvest that they sowed in Egypt, but only those that they will sow in the land of Canaan. In our case, the Canaan land and the Egyptian land, we're talking about the participation of our body. If we do our work not from our soul with our heart, we are sowing in the land of the Egyptians. If we do our work as to the Lord, then we sow in the land of Canaan. Pay attention to your relationship toward your jobs. Many saints hate their jobs. They are constantly unhappy. They constantly are waiting to be rid of it. They don't want to redirect and to say, today I'm going to begin for the Lord. I'm going to do it with my whole soul. God is a laborer. He's a worker. When a person does it, for someone who he loves, he does it well because he does it for his, you know, for his beloved whom he loves. With love, he does it. And with love, we must do it for the Lord. Colossians 3, 23-24. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So it turns out that to serve the Lord Jesus Christ we can do so by a relationship toward work. It doesn't matter what kind of work you do. Whether or not you're, you're, you work at home, you clean up in your house, do the dishes, do it for the Lord. Clo clean your room as if you're cleaning it not for yourselves and not for your husband and not for the guests that are going to come that you are cleaning for, but do it for the Lord. Take a look at what will happen when you begin to control yourselves, that each work that you do, do it 
with this from your soul to the Lord. That is when God sends his blessing. You will do this, and in order to do this, you must have a circumcised heart. If the heart of a person is not circumcised, he isn't going to be able to do this work with his whole whole heart. He's going to have his own hobby, as people call it. He's waiting for one work to be over and when he's going to be able to go and do that which is interesting for him. The work that he does, the job that he does, isn't interesting to him. Because the body and the flesh of a person, they search for interests. Oh, I don't have any interests, I don't have any callings, my callings are something else. You know, we might have different callings or abilities to do something, but oftentimes we do that which must feed us. Turns out that our hobbies can't can't feed us. We need to go and work where we can earn money so that we can feed ourselves, our families, and to also give to the needy. It's very important. Here it says, if you do not circumcise your hearts, nothing will occur. Therefore, when a person with an uncircumcised heart, he honors God with tithes and offerings. The word honor doesn't really work in this case because he is searching for some kind of gain for himself. An uncircumcised heart is incapable. He is sowing in the Egyptian land. He is incapable of searching for God when he honors him with tithes. He searches for that which, for those things which God has. Healing, we come to church not to keep, not to receive healing, but to, to be met with the Lord, to acknowledge God, to search for his countenance. And healing and prosperity, these are his prerogatives. When we search for these things, then God is going to care. He's going to say, you don't need to search for what to eat, what to drink, what to be clothed in. Know that I have already healed you 2,000 years ago, and I have already placed healing on your account and prosperity. Therefore, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Begin your prayer with thanksgiving. Say, I thank you, Lord, that you have placed on my account complete prosperity. Today you have allowed me to use what I have, and I thank you for that little, although all things belong to you. The whole earth belongs to God, and all of its riches belong to God. We'll say, God, how come you give, you allow people of this world to use these riches, but you don't allow us to? God says, I have given you to use the imperishable riches because these riches are soon going to, the riches of this world are soon going to perish. And if I allow you to draw near to it and you will be enticed by it, I'm going to lose you. I don't want to lose you. I love you. And for the sake of my love, I gave you just enough so that you're not dependent on money. If I see that you are not dependent on money, you will receive more and more and more. That this money will serve for you, and that you will build yourselves into house of God. You will use this money so that you can create such an atmosphere around you that you will build yourselves into a house of God. He will not feast daily, just like that rich, rich person did. He was loved. He was respected. He had a circle of his own friends, and he said, "Oh, look what kind of." good person he is. Look at what kind of generous hand he has. What's strange is that these rich people don't see 
the poor people sitting next to them, also who are children of God. This was Lazarus, the category of Lazarus. In churches, there exists groups. They are separated. This is one group. This is another group. I remember in my church, we also had groups. I think those who have been long Christians, there is an elite so-called group, and many look at it with desire. Oh, if only this person would invite me. If only I was invited there and there and there. They have their own circle of friends where they invite each other. And my heart always cried, and I was sad for those saints who were considered nothing. I invited them, but this elite group wanted me to be with them. They always told me, come to us, and I said, no, I have guests today. I said, this person, this person, that person, whom they did not want to invite. Then they told me, all right, fine, go with your little tales. And then these people... And I understood this. How can a church get rid of this? And this exists in every single church. In every single church, there are rich people that are famous people. They communicate and they are friends with one another, but the poor, they're on their own. You know, when the Holy Spirit unites everyone, everyone is going to have one heart, one soul. Why do churches today focus on homeless people, on some kind of elderly homes, on orphans, and so forth. Why aren't they focused on the brothers and sisters who are sitting alongside them, who can't, who don't have the opportunity to earn as much as they do? How come they don't do that? They think that if they go into the world for Christ had said, we will serve those who are, we are one with in our faith. What we have already taken care of all those who are our brothers and sisters, that we go to feed the homeless. We pay taxes for this, and governments have programs for this. This isn't our role. It's not our role. Our role is to honor to help those who are in our faith. I understand that a person from this world, you might help one another, help him, but only after you do this to those who are according, who are in your faith. This talks about the earth where they're located, the land of Canaan. This is the image of our reborn person and an image of the Church of Christ. Here, God wants to fix his order, to circumcise our heart, to separate us from this world, so that we're not focused on this world, but focused on that which Christ has died for. He did not die for the whole world. Christ had given himself up for his church by washing her in the water through the words that she could be holy and blameless before him in love. This is who Christ had laid down his life for. To this person, favor upon him, love him, and stoop down to his level. We have come, we have repented. You know, perhaps not many of us are spiritual. There are very many carnal people out there. And you know how carnal people get offended when they're called carnal, when they talk 
when I give, tell them that they're carnal. But I have the right to do this, and I have the right to give this kind of appraisal. And when I'm asked a question, how can I uh, distinguish a carnal from a spiritual? And I said, according to his lips. Scripture says this. If he has bridled lips, meek, then he is a spiritual person. If his lips are not bridled, they're not meek, that means that he is carnal. Christ has said, learn from me, from I am from my meek in heart. A meek heart and meek lips. If you can't, if you want to, to try and, if someone says something to you and you're trying to pay, pay him back, that means you're a simple carnal person. If you're constantly, it's very difficult to, for anyone to speak to you, stop biting back and everything will be fine. This is spirituality. And everything depends on us. When you begin to discipline yourselves, when you begin to humble yourselves, God doesn't humble you, you humble yourselves. Then is the process of circumcision, and then there will be a time when it ends. It must then be protected and then there will be great miracles and God says I will give you prosperity in all the work of your hands we're going to honor God with tithes and offerings we're going to bring joy to his heart that in these tithes and offerings when we honor him we are truly going to honor him and not search for healing and some kind of prosperity, some kind of blessings. We, were, we are going to search for knowledge of God so that He gives us the opportunity to find those main services that He has placed before us because honoring God is comprised of certain conditions. And the conditions that God has presented for all of us is to adopt our bodies through redemption. This is the goal that He has placed before us to make the body different according to its components in the dimension of time, to make it of a different component, to make it imperishable. Let us stand and sing together. And so each time when Israel had honored God with tithes and offerings, either in the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon, according to the words of Moses that he had received from God as a revelation, he was called to raise his hands over his offerings and to proclaim one unique proclamation that they were faithful to for thousands of years. We, being that same Israel, tied to that same root, drinking from the same tree, will do the same thing. Please raise your right hands as a symbol of your righteous act and pray along with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I am grateful to you. I have separated tithes from my home and I have brought them into your home so that your home may have food. I do not give impurely. I do not give in sorrow, and I do not give for the dead. I rejoice that I have the privilege to express my love and to acknowledge your authority. And according to your word, I ask you, right now, may your heavenly windows be opened, and may your blessings come abundantly upon your redeemed nation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen, amen. May the Lord bless you, you may be seated.
precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, a sure foundation, a solid stone, a precious cornerstone. He that believeth shall shall not make
And so, those who have a Bible, you can open along with me. A place of scripture that is not often read but is known to us, that contains a great mystery of relations between God and His saved man. He, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. The sermon that I would like to continue is called, Return to the Ancient Path of Goodness. While studying the ancient path of goodness, we turn to the words of Apostle Paul, who according to the mercy and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in short and concise definitions, was able to formulate the order that is present in the teaching of Christ. A new version of this piece of scripture, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1-2, through 2, sounds like this. Therefore, sprinkle yourself with the elementary principles of Christ and being armed in the armor of light contained in the reign of the teaching, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of the hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Four rivers that flow out of Eden for the nourishment of the garden. So we will see four dimensions, north, east, south, and west. And everywhere we are going to be met with this format. And in a certain format, as much as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we have already studied the doctrine of baptism, which expresses itself in baptism in water, Holy Spirit, and fire. And we have stopped to study the doctrine of laying on of hands that is presented on the southern side of New Jerusalem in three gates. Considering the fact that a covenant between man and God is made in three baptisms, we can conclude that the doctrine of laying on of hands contains three levels of a covenant with God. 
This is the covenant of blood, covenant of salt, and the covenant of rest. I will remind you that the covenant of blood and water baptism is called to sanctify us and give God the opportunity to write the name that we are given by Him in the book of life. It is in that moment when we make a covenant in baptism in water that our name is written so that this name could serve as a seal of righteousness before God. Because the seal of righteousness that we acquire upon making a covenant of blood and water baptism is a new name given by God to a new creation which contains our divine fate in God in the subject of our calling and our vocation. The covenant of salt and baptism in the Holy Spirit is called to give us the opportunity to destroy sin and hallow God in our bodies and souls which are essentially God's. The covenant of rest and fire baptism is called to lead us into God's rest expressed in the Sabbath of the eternal day where we receive the ability to demonstrate the results of the holiness that we carry in our bodies and our souls. The doctrine of laying on of hands is a doctrine about a covenant made between God and man and man and God. The doctrine of laying on of hands is an image of the legal aspect in which a person with his own hand signs an agreement with God in which he consciously promises to serve God with a good conscience. Making this kind of contract in all three levels will always be tied to the presentation of our body as a living, holy, and pleasing sacrifice to God for reasonable service. That is why any sacrifice brought to God was called to be brought only when a hand was laid on its head. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. To make atonement means for, re for redemption. To to cleanse is to justify. The atonement for sin or justification that we receive through the laying on of the hand on the head of the sacrifice, which in the face of the Son of Man takes in upon itself, is in fact accepting the conditions that are contained in all three levels of a covenant. Keep in mind the doctrine of laying on of hands presented in three covenants is multifaceted, diverse, polysemantic, and multifunctional. The laying on of hands in the totality of three covenants is an image of proclaiming the faith of our heart in that Jesus is Lord and that God has resurrected him for our justification. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 10. This is taken from Deuteronomy. But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We should note that the doctrine of the laying on of hands outside of the norms of the covenant and not according to the norms of the covenant will not gain favor in the atonement for sins. We have three levels of a covenant that pursue one goal but fulfill three different functions, each of which contains different images, elements, and meanings. We have already looked at the covenant of blood and covenant of salt and have stopped to study the third level of the covenant. This is the covenant of rest of which is said, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish 
establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 27 through 28. This will occur only in the covenant of rest. In this case, the phrase everlasting peace resulting from a covenant of God with man is the equivalent of the phrase everlasting rest because the phrase everlasting peace in this passage contains the following meanings. Everlasting peace is ever eternal rest, eternal comfort, eternal day means the Sabbath day because only the Sabbath was an eternal day. It did not have its beginning nor its end. There was no night there. When God was comforted from his works, it didn't say, and there was evening, and there was there was night, and there was morning. No, this day existed even before these six days. But when God had filled his work, he, he went ahead to, to show what he found rest in. Therefore, this is eternal day, eternal peace, eternal well-being, eternal prosperity, eternal wealth, eternal security, eternal friendliness, eternal joy, eternal triumph, and eternal communication. The image of the covenant of rest as the sixth foundation of the wall of New Jerusalem was made out of pre precious sardius stone. And then this number six, the sixth foundation, six, and again is the number of man. The foundations of the wall of this city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones, the sixth sardius. Revelation chapter 21, verses 19 through 20. I will remind you that sardius is an old Russian word meaning pleasing the heart or calming the heart. And as far as we know, carnelian, as a form of onyx, was also on the breastplate of the high priest. It is in the star, the old Slavic language that they saw in this precious stone something special, and they called it pleasing the heart or calming the heart, sardius, that which is tied with rest. And again, as far as we know, sardius is a form of onyx was also on the breastplate of the high priest, and therefore, when it came to the authority of Carnelian or Sardius, God, through Urim and Thummim, used the functions and voice of rest, by which is meant the voice of silence, voice of peace, voice of comfort, or the voice of quiet movement. It was in such a still small voice that God spoke to the prophet Elijah when, while looking for God, he found himself in a cave on the mountain of God, Horeb. Therefore, the functions of the sixth foundation of the walls of New Jerusalem refer to the powers contained in the covenant of rest, which a person can experience during communication with God only when he fulfills those obligations that are in a covenant of rest with God. Now, 
And if a person is not familiar with the powers that are contained in a covenant of rest and what role God took upon himself in this covenant, as well as what role man was given, then this person will sooner be a violator of this covenant rather than a fulfiller of it. However, to better understand the nature of Sardius, which contains the powers of a covenant of rest, we will need to turn to the meaning of the name of the Apostle that was engraved on the sixth foundation out of Sardius stone. Again, each foundation had its own name, its name of the Apostle. Because the name of the Apostle was called to yield the dignity and nature of Sardius, which in this foundation will, will present the powers of the covenant of rest. Whereas the foundation of Sardius itself will yield the work of the still small voice, which God will fulfill through the powers contained in the name of the Apostle that is engraved on this foundation. And as we already know, the name of the Apostle engraved on the sixth foundation of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem was the name Bartholomew. Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 3. The twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. Fourth, John, his brother. Fifth, Philip. And sixth, Bartholomew. The name Bartholomew, which is mentioned here by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel of Matthew, means son of Tolmai. So this is the name of the father of this person, but it belongs to him, and we oftentimes call one another not our personal name, but the name of our parents. However, in the Gospel of John, the son of Tolmai, or rather Bartholomew, was called by his personal name, which was Nathaniel, which means gift of God. When Nathanael had met Christ, Christ called him an Israelite in whom there was no deceit. Is an Israelite or Israel is a victor, victorious, who gives God the opportunity to fight along with him against the fear of death in prayer battle. To this person is given the name Israel, true Israelite. John chapter 1, verses 45 through 47, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and the, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip, or Nathaniel knew that according to scripture he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He didn't know yet that he truly was from Bethlehem, but he had left Bethlehem and was living in Nazarene. But Nathaniel had said to him, or Philip had said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Furthermore, it said that when he said, Where, how do you know me from? He says, I saw you under the fig tree previously. I saw you before I had called you. Fig tree. A fig tree is that place, that mystery place, where Nathaniel had went and prayed. That was... 
He was a worshiper. He was one who prayed. Jesus said, this is a true Israelite. And so the name given by Christ to Nathaniel, son of Tolmai, means a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Thus, if we combine all of these three names, then the name engraved on the sixth foundation of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem made out of Sardius stone means the son of the Father, meaning gift of God, who is a standard for true worship in the atmosphere of true prayer for all who come to the Father. From this it follows that the name engraved on the sixth foundation on the precious Sardius stone represents in the covenant of rest the true atmosphere for worship in prayer to the Father in spirit and truth. John chapter 4 verses 23-24 But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. In a certain format, we have studied in what cases this name and its functions expressed in the powers of prayer and worship are met in Scripture. We came to the conclusion that the first component, there are many of them, but we took the most significant. This is the essence of dedication to God and worship. It was expressed in a trembling relationship toward the intentions of God, second, offering a sacrifice which yields the favor of God, third, walking before God, fourth, the conditions giving us the ability to find the pasture of the kingdom of heaven, fifth, it's partaking to the faith of Abraham, sixth, building an altar in Beersheba, seventh, building an altar in Bethel, and eighth, offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The teaching about the covenant of rest is a teaching about the powers contained in worship to God, whereas the teaching about worship to God is the teaching about the powers contained in the covenant of rest. Just like we did when studying the previous foundations of the walls of heavenly Jerusalem, I will mention several components that are meaningful in my eyes that will be the opportunity for realizing the faithful promises for us in which we can enter through the conditions outlined in the covenant of rest. And so, when studying the powers contained in the covenant of salt, the first component I would like to focus our attention on is the nature of the seal of God which a person is sealed with upon making a covenant of rest in fire baptism. To paint a full picture in regard to all of the seals of God with which a person is sealed in three baptisms, I will remind you of the definition of these seals which yield the different functions and powers of the three covenants. The first seal is holy unto the Lord that we receive upon being baptized in water, holy unto the Lord. The priest had a golden, a golden plate on his forehead, and on it was written, holy unto the Lord, belonging to God, redeemed by the blood. Therefore, when we make in the baptism of water or in the blood of the covenant, 
we make a covenant with God in, in water baptism, we receive a new name, and this name means holy unto the Lord, or is holy unto the Lord. When we make a covenant of salt in baptism in the Holy Spirit, we receive the seal called the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. And he, it says, He who has the seal, the Lord knows those who are His. The seal in the covenant of rest is, the Lord is there. This means that the Lord is found there, He dwells there. He who has the seal, this means that God dwells there, God finds rest there. And since we have already spent time dissecting the first two seals, let's focus our attention on the purposes and functions of the seal contained in the covenant of rest in fire baptism. I will mention this place of scripture where this is located. This isn't just some kind of unlawful slogan. Ezekiel 38, verses 30 to 35. This highlights the heavenly Jerusalem. These are the exits of the city on the north side, measuring 4,000. Three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, and one gate for Levi. On the east side, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan. On the south side, Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. On the west side, one for Gad, one gate for Asher, and one for Naphtali. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. So when we are going to have these 12 teachings, when we have these 12 gates with the engravings or the names of the patriarchs, it's written that the name from that time will be the Lord is there. And now we'll turn to the powers and the capabilities contained in the covenant of rest. First, the covenant of rest unveils the mystery of the location of the Heavenly Father where God could build trustworthy relations with a person who is in the likeness of Him. Psalms 132, verses 13 through 16. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. For I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. The word Zion became a synonym for Jerusalem, the city that is set on a hill. And this word literally means known, which means widely known, eminent, occupying a high position, and glorified. Songs of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, talks about the, the famousness of, of Zion in the face of the most beautiful of women. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. Daughter, prince's daughter. This is a word that is used to call heavenly Jerusalem, daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful woman, workman. 
are for the world. The sandals, this is to represent the perfection of the Heavenly Father for the world that surrounds us, not just for the world that surrounds us, but for one another. Just as Christ has said, you are light to the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot hide. Therefore, if we are the house of God, we must be a light to one another. And for the world, we must be a city set on a hill, this light. You are light to the world. You are the light of day. You are day. And therefore, here we see, uh, here we read about this most beautiful woman. I won't interpret this, or I won't, I won't interpret it because it would take some time, but I will read. Take a look at how the Holy Spirit calls this known Zion, this well-known Zion. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet, it lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. The king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. For this person, who is so well known, God's rest is presented in the dignity of the secret place of the Most High in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalms 90 verses 1 through 2. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Pay attention here. Where is this covenant of rest? What is it expressed in? How do the children of God can they today feel this rest of God? Who is called this well-known daughter? He who acknowledges the delegated authority of God. He who does not go against it and does not challenge it. Because the blood of the Most High or the secret place of the Most High and the shadow of the Almighty, this is the veil, this is the delegated authority in the church. Through them, God unveils all of the promises and all of the powers that are contained in all three covenants. Let's go further. Second, covenant of rest for man is presented in the limits of the land that lie down between rivers. Genesis chapter 49, verses 14 through 15. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two rivers. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Issachar, a strong donkey, is an image of a person who reconciles with God and his conditions and who looks upon the imperishable inheritance. Everywhere a donkey is representative of peace. This is our body our holy body in which the Holy Spirit dwells, the temple of God. 
And here it talks about how Isachar is a strong donkey, meaning reconciled with God. Isachar, the name itself, means retribution. Therefore, the strong donkey is an image of a person who reconciles with God in his conditions and who looks upon the imperishable inheritance, upon retribution, what God is going to give people, what he has promised. They continually focus with their eyes on who God is for them and what God has done for them. They're not so focused on their old nature, what's going on inside, how, how it is expressing itself. The more we, that we focus on our nature, the more we're going to lose. Because that which we look upon and focus on, we transform into that very same image. Therefore, it's necessary for us to look at who God is for us and what God has done for us. We must look upon the retribution. Therefore, here it says, Isachar, a strong donkey, because he looks upon the invisible, and therefore he is firm, he is strong. The fact that he lies down between two rivers means accepting and dwelling in the reigning teaching of Christ that comes from the throne of God and Lamb in the image of four rivers, which represent four teachings sent to rule over the four unchanging dimensions, north, east, south, and west. This is an image. When Jacob had blessed his son, he had blessed each of us individually. He had blessed all of the children of Abraham. This doesn't mean that this belongs to that Isaacar himself, but that Isaacar never even had used this these powers. He never perhaps even understood this meaning. Because as Daniel had said, Master, I don't understand what you are showing me, but he said, you don't need to understand because this I'm not saying for you. Just take it, write it, write down what you see. This is for the wise of the end days. They will understand it. To them I will give a revelation. To you I had revealed it, not for you to understand it, but for you to write it down. Write it down. Same thing here. The children of Jacob did not understand fully the meaning of the blessings that Jacob had blessed them with. But this was given for all days. This was an image. These were the parables through whom God, through which God wanted to show something to us. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. This is the appraisal of the laws established for the land that lies between two, two rivers. Because God's rest is the order of God. They are the laws of the kingdom of heaven. And he had seen that this order is good. And it's written, he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden, which means that he humbled himself before the laws of the land, lying between two rivers. And he began to become a band of slaves. This means to fulfill one's calling in order to receive retribution that is contained in this vocation. To become a band of slaves, he began to do something. He began to give something so that he could receive 
that which is promised to him, because it was promised upon certain conditions. Take a look at what Christ had said. That same phrase that we had read, Isahar, a, a strong donkey, lying, between two rivers he saw that rest was good and that land was pleasant here is how Jesus formulated this come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me come to me, learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light he had taken a burden and he began to become a band of slaves. Third, the covenant of rest for the righteous dwells between the shoulders of God. Shoulders. This is a symbol of authority. Deuteronomy 33.12 Of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. For the high priest, this was a large rock on one, and on the other shoulder, another rock. Six names on each rock as a continual memorial before God. God saw this authority, and God was able to express this authority through these 12 names that were on the shoulders. Benjamin is the same as the son of Jacob and Rachel. We know that the birth of Benjamin ended up being deadly for Rachel. Upon dying while giving birth to him, she called his name Benoni, which means son of my sorrows. But Jacob changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of my joy. A person with a righteous heart is a person who observes the justice of God while judging himself and those who are found in his responsibility according to the requirements of the laws established by God and the boundaries of his kingdom. A person who observes justice is a person who is loved by God or distinguished by God through the following seals of God, holy unto the Lord. The Lord knows those who are His, and the Lord is there. Here it talks about those who shelter in God. Benjamin shelters in God safely. He who shelters in God is a person who lives according to what belongs God what belongs to God. He who dwells safety in God is a person who is protected from the anger of God through observance of God's justice. This is, he's protected from God because he is found in the presence of God. And it's written that he dwells safe in safety. When Moses had said, show me your face, he said, this is dangerous, you are going to perish. You are going to die. A person can't see my face and remain living. 
How can we be found in the presence of the Father? How can we see His face? How can we be in His presence, in His rest, and not be destroyed by Him? How can we dwell safety in, safely in His presence? Here, it talks about He who is loved by God. He dwells safely in Him. There is no danger from the Father to Him. The Father does not carry some kind of anger toward Him. That isn't for Him. God sheltering man means that in the work of justice, God demonstrated to him his authority and his protection. Because it's not easy to practice justice. It's not easy to practice justice. And that's why God helps these people to practice this justice, to discipline themselves and those who are found under their responsibility according to the laws of God. He who dwells between his shoulders is he who finds rest in the strength of God, because the shoulders of God, as we mentioned, are the carriers of the mighty authority of God. And so in the rest of the covenant, we see the authority of the Heavenly Father that dwells on his shoulders, and God places us if we want to test or want to know what God's rest is, we must be those with a just heart, and then God is going to love us, the Son on my right hand, someone I can rely on, Son of Joy. Fourth, covenant of rest for the carriers of a blissful fate is found in their calling to be lions. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 20 through 21. And of Gad, he said, and again, Gad is one of the other sons of Jacob. Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because the lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. He dwells as a lion. We know that a lion... We call, he is often called the king of animals, but he doesn't know that he's the king of all animals. His inner strength is, is such that he isn't afraid of anything. For example, if you close to a bear who doesn't, who doesn't notice you, if you simply clap, um, for a bear his heart might burst because of this sudden sound that he was unexpecting. But if you shoot out of a gun next to a lion, he's not going to move. He's not afraid of any kind of sudden sound. There were instances where bears had died uh, while going to the bathroom and a pine cone would fall on their head and they had died because they weren't expecting it. And hunters, the two hunters, they didn't know this and they sometimes would go out to hunt and would use this tactic. They would run around, run the bear around, around the tree, and they would 
all of a sudden yell, and the bear's heart would, would, would stop would burst. So he dwells as a lion, dwelling, he's not scared of some kind of all of a sudden circumstances that might change. A bear sees and you do something, and he's not afraid of sound. He can be scared of it when he doesn't see it, just like any dog, for example. It's enough for a dog to to sit and behind the dog you will make some kind of sound uh, she's going to be shocked and I had I had tried this out myself on big dogs and when they were sitting and I'd hit them from behind or I'd yell or something from behind the dogs would the dogs would would be shocked this doesn't happen with lions because the righteous isn't afraid of these kind of all of a sudden events the name Gad means blissfulness this means given a blissful fate by God or looking upon his calling in God Blessed is he who enlarges God means that God receives the opportunity to successfully expand the influence and authority of a person and the realization of his calling under the condition that this person looks upon who God is for him and what God has done for him. He who dwells as a lion means he looks upon the justice of God and finds comfort in the justice of God. Why does he dwell as a lion? Because the justice of God is a kind of authority, a kind of power. When you look upon this justice, then you become this lion. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion who tears the arm and the crown of his head means that a righteous man proceeding from the powers of the righteousness he has received practices righteousness by unleashing the judgments of God on all wickedness in the limits of his responsibility through acts of holiness. Furthermore, talks about God that he provided the first part for himself. This means that the righteous man preferred to suffer with the nation of God than have momentary sinful satisfaction with the Egyptians. First part means chosen by God in Zion, which is the Jerusalem of heaven. This is a small flock. It's the first fruit. However great Israel might be, as great as the sand, the chosen remnant only will be saved. And in order to want this, we need to choose it, because with this first fruit, we will need to suffer. You know, the majority of Christians, they don't suffer. The minority, the small flock suffers. The majority of Christians, they walk the wide path and they have legalized all kinds of sin and they say that God loves everyone and we can have communication with everyone and love everyone, homosexuals, lesbians, because God loves them, they say. God despises those sinners who do not leave their sin. He loves only those sinners who are tormented from their sin and they are searching for freedom. There are very many people in this world who don't know God. They search for freedom from sin. Oh, there, there are people who know God and who 
turn away from sin. God loves them. But those who love sin, how can God love them? How can God love a person who loves sin? In Scripture, this simply doesn't exist. That's why when Moses had chosen for himself that it would be best to suffer with Israel than to be with the Egyptians, he provided the first part for himself. He wanted to suffer with the nation of God rather than have momentary sinful satisfaction. And it's written that there, in this first part for himself, there is a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. This means that the righteous man is reserved the portion in the limits of God's chosen remnant who happens to be the territory of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Furthermore, it says he came with the heads of the people well, this means that the portion that was reserved for the righteous man among the chosen remnant of God was the dignity to represent the authority that are carried by the heads of the God's chosen remnant. Take a look, Matthew 10:41. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. He had chosen people without being ahead of people who came with the heads of the nation. He received a portion with them because he was obedient to these leaders, to these heads. He did not criticize. He didn't inspect them. He came as a disciple, not as an inspector. Because he firmly knew that this person was placed by God and he was speaking the words of God and not just the thoughts of man, human thoughts. And it's written that he administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. This means that the righteous man could fulfill the responsibility laid upon him and fulfill justice and unleashing the judgments of God written in Scripture thanks to his organized partaking to Israel or thanks to his partaking to the worshippers whom God searches for himself. When we're talking about Israel, we're talking about the worshippers of God, those who worship in spirit and truth. Fifth, the covenant of rest is contained in the obligations of a person to remain in the limits of his responsibility in honor of the rest of the seventh day. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, Again, here we see worship that is present in the covenant of rest. For thus is the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, and returning on rest you shall be saved, and quietness and confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. He talks about how many didn't, many didn't want to, even though they were his children. For the one who was found himself, he was a son of Abraham. It was there, having seen in this parable, he called out to Abraham and he said, My father Abraham, have mercy upon me. Send me Lazarus to touch my lips. With the water. How come the lips? Because all of those who are going to be tormented in the lake of fire, they are going to be tormented due to their tongue because 
Because this rich man, he had affirmed why he ended up there. God isn't against um, Christians being wealthy. God is against them saying that wealth is a standard of spirituality. If you are poor, that means you are under the spirit of poverty, some people think. That you're not perfect, you need to be free from the spirit of poverty. And people use the principles of faith that are given to realize the incorruptible inheritance in order to gain the true inheritance. This was kind of person the rich man was, because there were other rich people there too, but this rich man was not richer than in King David. However, King David continually said, I am poor, because he understood that this is nothing. If you don't have the Lord, you are nothing, you are poor. If you have the whole world, but you don't have a real correct relationship with God, you are poor. That is why here we talk about this kind of worship. For as thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. I'll remind you that the Holy One of Israel is the Holy Worshipper. In this case, God calls Himself a name that is contained in the functions of a worshipper. Holy One of Israel is the Holy Worshipper. And again, in this case, God calls Himself a name that is contained in the functions of a worshipper. And so the phrase, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, means that God turns to the one who comes to him only from the position of those people who are his worshippers. So God is going to turn to man. Thus says the Lord God. When God says something, he says, he talks only through his worshippers, the Holy One of Israel. He speaks through them, only through them. In returning and rest you shall be saved means that only by remaining in the limits of our responsibility and honoring the seventh day can we inherit the salvation of God. The rest of the seventh day. Because God's rest or God's seventh day is the chosen remnant, Israel. The Word of God says, you are the day, you are the sons of light, the sons of day. We are not the sons of night and darkness. And when God calls us day, He doesn't call us the first day, the second day. There is no definition. This means that this is the seventh day. Because rest is brought on the seventh day, and not on the first day that starts at the morning and ends at night. When a person dwells in rest, there will be no night there. That's why in quietness and confidence shall be your strength means by not expressing distaste um, against my messengers and looking upon trust can you gain the strength and faith that could not be broken by any storm. This is what this place means. So in quietness and in trust Quietness is humility in which a person agrees to honor God according to the order established by God. Because according to Scripture, only in this kind of quietness, yielding the nature of the humility of Christ, can a person build himself into a dwelling of God. 
First Kings 6-7, in the temple when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. Pay attention, take a look at how the temple was being built in quietness. When you see... <laughs> when you see these kind of loud congregations that yell and scream, you can see that there's not there. I've told you this before. I hadn't seen a long childhood friend before. And after many years, I went to that church where I was born in. We began to pray and there was a kind of loud cry that started to go out. People were yelling and screaming while praying. And then the scream ended and then everyone was praying on their own. And when this, and then when I was standing next to my friend, he was also screaming. I elbowed him on his side, I thought, perhaps he might have broken a rib. He was so succumbed to this pain. He looked at me, he didn't understand what was going on. I said, what are you, crazy? I said, no. He's asking me, what are you doing? And I said, why are you yelling? He said, well, they're yelling. And I'm asking him, why are you yelling? What, is God deaf or you can't speak to him normally? Like a son with a father, why are you yelling? I said, stop yelling. He said, you, that, that was painful. And I told him, you'll remember that not to, not to act toward God this way. The, he's the father. Why do you come and yell at him? Imagine. When your child comes to you and starts yelling at you like that, you're going to say, be quiet. I won't talk to you until you're quiet. This doesn't mean that you can't pray aloud, that the salt is in this. When a person yells and screams without understanding what he's saying, when this word, when the word, simply the word Lord for him is just an empty filler word, that's not correct. A lot of preachers, they say, dear friend, dear friend, up from the pulpit, because they don't know what to say, and therefore they say, my dear beloved, or my dear friend, you don't need to use these kind of empty words, you must take the words of prayer and come to God. God says, take the words of prayer and come to me. That's why it's very important when the temple was built, it wasn't, it wasn't heard. The rocks were chiseled, but not in the powers of the covenant of rest. They were chiseled by the powers of the covenant of blood and salt when the old and carnal allowed itself all sorts of indignation and criticism both in relation to each other and to the messengers of God. When people allow this from themselves, they're not in the covenant of rest. They need to still be chiseled so that they stop, criticize, and so forth. Remember David, his whole life was a constant opposition, neglect and criticism of his dignity and his calling from the people of Israel. His power was rather revered among the hostile peoples who submitted to him. But his people, until the end of life, built him forges, and he continued to feed them. Because of this, the deep need and thirst to build a sanctuary to God could not be realized by him. But when his son Solomon came to power, 
appointed by David personally during his lifetime, it was he, being a peaceful person, who could build this temple. First, Chronicles chapter 22, verses 9 through 10, Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom of, over Israel forever. When the construction of another and incorruptible temple began, which will not be destroyed forever, and which will become the eternal rest of the Almighty and unfading glory, the seventh day, it was this quietness that God favors that was precisely the main instrument atmosphere in the creation of this eternal dwelling of God. Take a look at the engineer who is going to build this temple. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking fox he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged. So he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Philip, sometimes it might seem to us that this quietness is something incorrect. No, this this means that this is this is strength. When a person yells, this means that he is weak. If you are strong, you will speak quietly, and that will be enough. But if you don't have enough arguments, you begin to yell. Spouses toward one another, children to their parents, parents to their children. When you don't have enough arguments, enough authority, enough strength, when you have enough of it, I had said to one of my co-workers before, he always told me, this was in Georgia, and he would tell others, I am... I'm angry, I'm angry. And I looked at the manager, came up to him. He began to yell at my co-worker. All of a sudden he grew quiet and I looked at my co-worker and I said, why are you angry now? Why was he not angry and did not yell at his manager and his emotions were fine? Because the manager was authority. To him. Therefore, when there is true authority, there will not be some kind of yelling. And Christ had begun to build this way as well. Disobedience and non-recognition of the order expressed in the delegated authority of God is the disbelief of people who show disobedience to the gospel of the kingdom of heaven which God swore that they would not enter into his rest. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 18 through 19 And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief that reproduces disobedience is always a noise that violates the silence contained in the requirements of the covenant of peace, expressed in all kinds of suspicions and slander, giving the rebellious grounds not to acknowledge the authority established by God and to make divisions contrary to the teachings of Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word 
which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For, the, for we who have believed do enter that rest. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Six, the covenant of rest begins to express its powers in those who survived the sword and found grace in the wilderness. Jeremiah 31, 2. Thus, says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness of Israel when I went to give him rest. Who? Give who rest? Israel. People think that Israel means all of Israel, and they say Israel. That which is today and that was then, Scripture called Sodom and Gomorrah, Babylon, the Apostle Paul said, this isn't that Israel. He said, that Israel is the children from the seed of Isaac that are not tied to flesh and bone. Those who survive this sword is Israel or people who overcome the fear of death in prayer thanks to the fact that they allow the Holy Spirit to participate with them in this battle. This isn't all of Israel, but rather those true worshippers of God who worship Him in spirit and truth. The fact that those who worship God survived the sword and found grace in the wilderness says that these people fell on their swords but ended up untouched. In this case, this prophecy about the sword is an allegory of the sword called the Word of God, which these people allowed to penetrate into their nature before the separation of soul and spirit and to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4, 12-13 For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. So if you do not allow it to penetrate, it won't penetrate to the division. It's those who allow it to penetrate or pierce, only them it pierces. And of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thanks to this cooperation with the words of God written in his word, these people tested themselves with the word of God and survived the sword. This is how Joel paints this picture, highlighting these people. Before them, the people rise in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. Thanks to the knowledge of the truth, worships, worshipers of God seek in their worship of God by separating themselves from everything that is contrary to God, which could at least somehow deviate them from their goal. And such total sanctification in search of God leads them into the wilderness or into the dimension of the Spirit. In Scripture, the wilderness, in its positive sense, is always an image of sanctification and consecration, or a place where a person can turn the favor of God in His grace upon himself. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 10-12. through 
Therefore I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths, to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Thanks to the knowledge of the truth, worshippers of God seek in their worship of God by separating themselves. Through these Sabbaths, God can bind himself to these people, thanks to which they could become united in one. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14-23 Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. It was there in the wilderness that God gave the people of rest to Sabbath, that they could be assigned between man and God. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there, in the valley of Achor, as a door of hope. She shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you shall be my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow, bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in the day that I I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth will answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. In the last days, when the time of the ancient dragon will run out, he will launch a fierce attack on the people of God in all spheres and areas of his life. But thanks to worship and spirit and truth, yielded by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God abiding in our heart, this people will be able to go into refuge in the subject of the wilderness in which God dwells. Revelation chapter 12, verses 13. Through 14. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Considering that our time has come to a conclusion, I think that these components are going to be enough to understand what the essence of the covenant of rest is, the powers that are found in there, the obligations that are placed on us, and what role we must fulfill and what role God must fulfill. And if we truly are enticed by this goal and we begin to meditate these thoughts, these revelations, we are going to come to such a rest where we are going to take authority over our enemies and we are going to be satisfied by our communication with God. And now let's bow our knees and bend our, bend our knees and bow our heads. And those who desire to cast out all sin, all dependency, all illness, fear, God is here with us in order to help us. 
He desires to take us out from captivity of sin, captivity of fear, captivity, and to fill us with himself. Amen. Let us pray. And I will pray along with you and I ask you to deeply believe that God is on your side. He is for you. He is not against you. Despite your fall, perhaps numerous falls, he says, if the righteous fall seven times but gets up, we have the covenant of blood that God has offered in his son that is able to right now upon your confession it can cleanse you protect you your eyes closed this is an element of the secret room your hands raised to the heavens pray along with me heavenly father in the name of jesus christ i come to you with my fears with my uncleanliness my dependency my illness my, I ask you, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, heal me, protect me, cover my shame. I accept your word, your power, the power of your blood, and right now, before heaven and hell, I want to proclaim that according to your word, I am washed, I am cleansed, I am healed, I am restored, I am justified, I am saved. Amen. Amen. Your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May He come upon you with His holy countenance. May He have mercy upon you. May He give you peace. May around you fall thousands and tens of thousands, but draw, not draw near you. May all of these blessings come upon you and upon your descendants, and may they be fulfilled upon you. Amen. And now, all together, let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.